You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Barry Stryford. Astounding Stories 10, October 1930, by Various. Section 16, An Extra Man, by Jackson G. Part 2. I was about to argue with him when suddenly he managed to thrust the doctor aside and start toward the door. His seriousness impressed me so that I gave him a supporting arm and together we headed down the hall, with Mrs. Drill and the doctor following anxiously in the rear. The laboratory was deserted and locked when we arrived. The police evidently felt it was too uncanny an atmosphere for a prolonged wait. Drill opened the door, went directly to his machine, and examined it minutely. "'Thank the Lord that woman hit only me,' he said, and sank into a chair. Then he asked for some brandy. Mrs. Drayle rushed off and reappeared in a minute with a decanter and a glass. Drayle helped himself to a swallow that brought color to his cheeks and new strength to his limbs. Immediately after, he turned again to the machine. I dragged up a chair, assisted him into it, and seated myself close by. I knew little enough about mechanics, but I was fascinated by the numerous gauges that faced me on the gleaming instrument board. There were dials with needle-like hands that registered various numbers. Spots of color appeared in narrow slots close to the solar spectrum. A stream of graph paper tape flowed slowly beneath a tracing pen point and carried away a jiggly thin line of purple ink. In a moment Drayle was oblivious of everything but his records. I watched him copy the indicated figures, surround them with formulas, and solve mysterious problems with a slide rule. His calculations covered a large sheet before he had finished. At last he underscored three intricate combinations of letters and figures and carried the answers to his private radio apparatus. This operated on a wavelength far outside the range of all others and ensured him against interference. With it, he was able to speak at any time with his assistants in Washington or Boston, or with both at once. He threw the switch that sent his call into the air. An answer came instantly, and Drayle began to talk to his distant lieutenants. "'We've been interrupted, gentlemen,' he said. "'But I think that we may continue now. We'll reassemble in the Boston laboratory. Have you arranged the elements? The coefficients are—' And he gave a succession of decimals. A voice replied that all was ready. Drayle said, Excellent, and went back to his invention and twisted a black knob on the board before him. With this trifling movement all hell seemed to crash about us. The ghastly cacophony that I had experienced in the same room some months previous was as nothing. These stupendous waves of sound pounded us until it seemed as if we must disintegrate beneath them. Wails and screams engulfed us. Mrs. Drayle dropped to her knees beside her husband. The doctor seized my arm, and I saw the knuckles of his hand turn white with the pressure of his grip, yet I felt nothing but the awful vibrations that drummed like riveting machines upon and through my nerves and body. It was not an attack upon the ears alone. It crashed upon the heart, beat upon the chest so that breathing seemed impossible. My brain throbbed under the terrific pulsations. For a while I imagined the human system could not endure the ordeal, and that all of us must be annihilated. Except for his slow turning of the dials, Drayle was motionless before the machine. Below the bandage about his forehead I could see his features drawn with anxiety. 
He had wagered a human life to test his theory, and I think the enormity of it had not struck him until that moment. What I knew and hoped enabled me to imagine what was taking place in the Boston laboratory. I seemed to see a man's elementary dust and vapors whirled from great containers upward into a stratum of shimmering air and gradually assume the outlines of a human form that became first opaque, then solid, and then a sentient being. At the same instant I was conscious that the appalling pandemonium had ceased and that the voice of Drill's Boston assistant was on the radio. "'Congratulations, Chief. His reassemblage is perfect. There's not a flaw anywhere.' "'Splendid,' Drail answered. "'Bring him here by plane right away. His wife is worried about him.' Then Drail turned to me. "'You see,' he said, "'Jackson G. was right. We have resolved man into his constituent elements, transmitted his key vibrations by radio, and reassembled him from a supply of identical elements at the other end.' And now, if you will assure that woman that her husband is safe, I will get some sleep. You will have the proof before you in less than three hours. I can't vouch for the doctor's feelings, but as Drayle left us, I was satisfied that everything was as it should be, and that I had just witnessed the greatest scientific achievement of all time. I did not foresee, nor did Drayle, the results of an error or deliberate disobedience on the part of one of his assistants. We waited, the doctor and I, for the arrival of the man, who, we were convinced, had been transported some three hundred miles in a manner that defied belief. The evidence would come, Drayle had said, in a few hours. Long before they had elapsed, we were starting at the sound of every passing motor, for we knew that a plane must land some distance from the house, and that the travelers would make the last mile or so by car. Mrs. Drayle endeavored to convince the imagined widow that her husband was safe, and was returning speedily. Later she rejoined us, full of questions that we answered in comforting blind faith. The time limit was drawing to a close when the sound of an automobile horn was quickly followed by a sharp knock on the laboratory door. At a sign from Mrs. Drell, one of the policemen opened it, and we saw two men before us. One, a scholarly-appearing, bespectacled youth, I recognized as Drell's Boston assistant, Ward. The other, a rather burly individual, was a stranger to me. But there was no doubt he was the man we awaited so eagerly, for Mrs. Farrell screamed, Harry! Harry! and sped across the room towards him. At first she ran her fingers rather timidly over his face, and then pinched his huge shoulders, as if to assure herself of his reality. The sense of touch must have satisfied her, for abruptly she kissed him, flung her arms about him, clung to him, and crooned little endearments. The big man, in turn, patted her cheeks awkwardly and mumbled in a convincingly natural tone, "'It's all right, Mary, old kid. There ain't nothing to it. Yeah, sure, it's me.' Then I was conscious of Drayle's presence. A brown silk dressing-gown fell shapelessly about his spare frame, and smoke from his cigarette rose in a quivering blue-white stream. Ward spied him at the same moment, and stepped forward with quick outstretched hands. I remember the flame of adoring zeal in the youngster's eyes as he tried to speak. At length he managed to stammer some congratulatory phrases, while Drayle clapped him affectionately on the back. Then Drayle turned to Farrell to ask him how he enjoyed the trip. Farrell grinned and said, Fine, it was like a dream, sir. First I'm in one place, and then I'm in another, and I don't know nothing about how I got there. But I could do with a drink, sir. I ain't used to the merry planes much.
Drayle accepted the hint and suggested that we all celebrate. He gave instructions over a desk telephone, and almost immediately a man entered with a small service wagon containing a wide assortment of liquors and glasses. When we had all been served, Ward asked somewhat hesitantly if he might propose a toast. To Dr. Drayle, the greatest scientist of all time. We were, of course, already somewhat drunk with excitement as we lifted our glasses, but Drayle would not have it. Let me amend that, he said. Let us drink to the future of science. Sure, said Farrell very promptly. I think he was somewhat uncertain about toast, but he clung hopefully to the word drink. We had raised our glasses again when Drayle, who was facing the door, dropped his. It struck the floor with a little crash, and the liquor spattered my ankles. Drayle whispered, Great God! I saw in the doorway another Farrell. He was grimy, disheveled, his clothing was torn, and his expression ugly. But his identity with Harry was unescapable. For an instant I suspected Drayle of trickery, of perpetuating some fiendishly elaborate hoax. And then I heard Mrs. Farrell scream, heard the newcomer cry, Mary! and saw two men staring at each other in bewilderment. The explanation burst upon me with a horrible suddenness. Farrell had been reconstructed in each of Drayle's distant laboratories, and there stood before us two identities, each equally authentic, each the legal husband of the woman who, a few hours previously, had imagined herself a widow. The situation was fantastic, nightmarish, unbelievable and undeniable. My head reeled with the fearful possibilities. Drayle was the first to recover his poise. He opened the door leading into an adjoining room and motioned for us all to enter. That is, all but the police. He left them wisely with their liquor. Finish it, he advised them. You see, no one has been killed. They were not quite satisfied, but neither were they certain what they ought to do, and for once displayed common sense by doing nothing. When the door closed after us, I saw that Buchanan, the Washington laboratory assistant, was with us. He must have arrived with the second feral, although I had not observed him during the confusion attending the former's unexpected appearance. But Drayle had noted him, and now seized his shoulders. "'Explain!' he demanded. Buchanan's face went white, and he shrank under the clutch of Drayle's fingers. Beyond them I saw the two twin-like men standing beside Mrs. Farrell, surveying each other with incredulous recognition and distaste. "'Explain!' roared Drayle again, and tightened his grasp. "'I thought you said Washington, chief!' His voice was not convincing. I didn't believe him, nor did Drayle. "'You lie!' he raged, and floored the man with his fist. In a way, I couldn't help feeling sorry for the chap. It must have been a frightful temptation to participate in the experiment, and I suppose he had not foreseen the consequences. But I began to have a glimmering of the magnificent possibilities of the invention for purposes far beyond Drayle's intent. For, I asked myself, why, if such a machine could produce two human identities, why not a score, a hundred, a thousand? The best of the race could be multiplied indefinitely, and man could make man at last, literally, out of the dust of the earth. The virtue of instantaneous transmission, which had been Drayle's aim, sank into insignificance beside it. I fancied a race of supermen thus created, and I still believe, Sergeant, 
that the chance for the world's greatest happiness is sealed within that box you guard. But its first fruits were tragic. The historian shifted his position on the bench so as to escape the sun that was now reflected dazzlingly by the polished steel casket. Drayle did not glance again at his disobedient lieutenant. He was concerned with the problem of the extra man, or, I should say, an extra man, for both were equal. Never before in the history of the world had two men been absolutely identical. They were, of course, one in thought, possessions, and rights, physical attributes and appearance. Mrs. Farrell, as they were beginning to realize, was the wife of both and I have an unworthy suspicion that the red-headed young woman, after she recovered from the shock, was not entirely displeased. The two men, however, finding that each had an arm about her waist, were regarding each other in a way that foretold trouble. Both spoke at the same time, and in the same words. "'Take your hands off my wife!' And I think they would have attacked each other then if Drayle hadn't intervened. He said, Sit down, all of you, in so peremptory a voice that we obeyed him. Now, he went on, pay attention to me. I think you realize the situation. The question is, what shall we do about it? He pointed an accusing finger at the feral from Washington. You were not authorized to exist. Properly, we should retransmit you, and without reassembling, you would simply cease to be. The man addressed looked terrified. It would be murder, he protested. Would it? Drayle inquired of me. I told him that it could not be proved insomuch as there would be no corpus delecti, and hence nothing on which to base a charge. But the Washington Farrell seemed to have more than an academic interest in the question and grew obstinate. Nothing doing, he announced emphatically. Here I am, and here I stay. I started from this place this morning, and now I'm back, and as for that big ape over there, I don't know nothing about him, except he'll be dead damn soon if he don't keep away from my wife. The other drail-made man leaped up at this, and again I expected violence, but Buchanan flung himself between, and they subsided, muttering. Very well, then, Drail continued, when the room was quiet. Here is another solution. We can, as you realize, duplicate Mrs. Farrell, and I will double your present possessions. This time it was Mrs. Farrell who was dissatisfied. You ain't talking to me, she informed Drill. Me stand naked in front of all them lamps and get turned into smoke? Not me. A smile spread over her face, and her eyes twinkled with deviltry. I didn't ever think I'd be in one of them triangles like in the movies, and with my own husbands, but seeing I am, I'm all for keeping them both and then I might know where one of them was some of the time. But neither of the men took to this idea, and the problem appeared increasingly complex. I proposed that the survivor be determined by lot, but this suggestion won no support from anyone. Again the two men spoke at the same instant, and in the same words. It was like a carefully rehearsed chorus. I know my rights, and I ain't going to be gypped out of them. It was at this point that Drayle attempted bribery. He offered $50,000 to the man who would abandon Mrs. Farrell. But this scheme fell through because both men sought the opportunity and Mrs. Farrell objected volubly. So in the end, Drayle promised each of them the same amount as a price for silence and left the matter of their relationships to their own settlement. I was skeptical of the success of the plan, but could offer nothing better. 
so I drew up a release as legally binding as I knew how to make it in a case without precedent. I remember thinking that if the matter ever came into court, the judge would be as much at a loss as I was. Our troubles, though, didn't spring from that source. Each of the three parties accepted the arrangement eagerly, and Drayle dismissed them with a handshake, a wish for luck, and a check for $50,000 each. It's very nice to be wealthy, you know. Afterward, we went out and paid off the police. Perhaps that's stating it too bluntly. I mean that Drayle thanked them for their zealous attention to his interests, regretted that they had been unnecessarily inconvenienced, and treated that they would not take amiss a small token of his appreciation of their devotion to duty. Then he shook hands with them both, and I believe I saw a yellow bill transferred on each occasion. At any rate, the officers saluted smartly and left. Of course, I was impatient to question Drayle, but I could see that he was desperately fatigued, so I departed. Next morning, I found my worst fears exceeded by the events of the night. The three ferals, who had left us in apparently amiable spirits, had proceeded to the home of Mrs. and the original Mr. Farrell. There, the argument of who was to leave had been resumed. Both men were, of course, of the same mind. Whether both desired to stay or flee, I would not presume to say. But an acrimonious dispute led to physical hostilities, and while Mrs. Farrell, according to accounts, cheered them on, they literally fought to the death. Being equally capable, there was naturally, barring interruption, no other possible outcome. I can well believe they employed the same tactics, swung the same blows, and died at the same instant. Mrs. Farrell, after carefully retrieving both of her husband's checks, told a great deal of the story. As might be expected, nobody believed the yarn except our profound federal lawmakers. They welcomed an opportunity to investigate an outsider for a change, and had all of us before a committee. Finally, the Congress of these United States of America, plus the sagacious Supreme Court, decided that my client wasn't guilty of anything, but that he mustn't do it again. At least that was the gist of it. I recollect that I offered a defense of psychopathic neuroticism. As a result of the obitter dictum, and a resolution by both houses assembled, Drayle's invention was sealed, dated, and placed under guard. That's its history, Sergeant. The white-haired old gentleman picked up a high silk hat that added a final touch of distinction to his tall figure, and looked about him as if trying to recall something. At last the idea came. By the way, he inquired suddenly, didn't I have an extraordinarily obnoxious grandson with me when I came? The attentive auditor was vastly startled. He surveyed the great hall rapidly, but reflected before he answered. No, sir. I mean, he ain't no more than average, but I reckon we'd better find him anyhow. His glance had satisfied the sergeant that at least the object of his charge was safe, and his men still vigilant. I'll be back in a minute, he informed them. Don't let nothing happen. Bring us something more than a breath, pleaded the corporal, disrespectfully. The sergeant had already set off at a brisk pace with the storyteller. For several minutes, as they rushed from room to room, the hunt was unrewarded. "'I think, sir,' said the sergeant, "'we'd better look in the natural history division. There is stuffed animals in there that the kids is fond of.' "'You are probably right,' the patriarch gasped, as he struggled to maintain the gait set by the younger man. 
I might have known he didn't really want to hear the story. They never do, answered the other over his shoulder. I'll bet that's him down there on the next floor. The two searchers had emerged upon a wide gallery that commanded a clear view of the main entrance, where various specimens of American fauna were mounted in intriguing replicas of their native habitat. The guard pointed an accusing finger at one of the groups and sprang toward the stairs. The old gentleman's breath and strength were gone. He could only gaze in the direction that had been indicated by the madly running guard. But he had no doubts. A small boy was certainly digging vigorously at the head of a specimen of Ursus Polaris that the curator had represented in the dramatic pose of killing a seal. A protesting wail arose from below as the young naturalist was withdrawn from his field by a capable hand on the slack of his trousers, and presently chagrined with failure the culprit was before his grandsire. "'Gee!' he complained. "'I was only looking at the polar bear. Are polar bears always white? Are—' "'You'd better take him away, sir,' interrupted the sergeant. "'He was trying to pry out one of the bear's eyes with the stick of the lollipop I give him. Take him.' The old gentleman extended both hands. His left found a grip in his grandson's coat collar, his right, partly concealing a government engraving, met the guards with a clasp of gratitude. Sergeant, he remarked, in a voice tense with feeling, a half hour ago I expressed some ridiculous regrets that Drayle's invention had been kept from the world. Now I realize its horrid menace. I shudder to think it might have been responsible for two like him. The object of disapproval was shaken indicatively. Guard the secret well, Sergeant. Guard it well. The world's peace depends upon you. The old gentleman's words trembled with conviction. Then, alternately shaking his head and his grandson, he marched down the hallway, Ebony Kane tapping angrily on the stone. As the exhausted but happy warrior retraced his steps, a high-pitched voice floated after him. Grandpa, are polar bears always white? End of section 16. An Extra Man by Jackson G. Recording by Barry Streifert.